other congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. And from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us, he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where they're tr- where the, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. You guys go ahead and grab a seat. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, we thank you again for this word and what it means. Would you open it up for us even more? Let us understand its truth. In Christ's name, amen. Um, We truly depend on God all the time. But there are times, certain times, when uh, we are more aware of that fact. In those times when we're dependent upon him, maybe we lack food we lack air conditioning, uh, we lack electricity, maybe we lack some finances, maybe we lack friendship, romance. In those moments, we become even more aware of the fact that we are dependent upon God. Um, there's an argument to be made, and I, see we, I think we see it from Scripture, that this is actually, in those moments, when you become super aware of your dependent upon God, that your faith is strongest. It's like when you are lacking something, uh, I think the fancy word for that is privation, um, and you are in want, your faith grows. This is strange. Or maybe not strange. Maybe you get that. Maybe you're like, of course it does. Uh, Victor Hugo uh, had to beat procrastination one time in his life, maybe many times in his life. I don't know exactly his personality. But in the summer of 1830, Victor Hugo was facing an impossible deadline, famous writer. 
See, uh, about a year earlier, the French author had promised the publish of a new book. Uh, but instead of writing, he spent that year pursuing other pro projects, hanging out with friends, gen generally just being distracted, not getting down to business. Um, frustrated, Hugo's publisher gave him a new deadline less than six months away. The book had to be finished by February of 1831. Um, did I say 1803 earlier? I meant 1830, so 1831. So uh, Hugo concocted a, a plan to force himself to get this finished, to beat his procrastination. He collected all of his clothes, his fancy clothes, with which he'd go out and entertain and hang out with his buddies and whatnot, and asked an assistant to lock them away in a large chest. He was left with nothing to wear except a large shawl, lacking any suitable clothing, of course, to go outdoors. He remained in his study and wrote furiously during the fall and winter of 1830. The Hunchback of Notre Dame was published two weeks early on January 14, 1831. Interesting. I, I read that little article some time and I got, here it is, the, this privation, this lack of or whatever, all the distractions vanished and he was able to, to furiously write, the, the article uh, wrote. When we are completely dependent upon God, those are the moments I think our faith, you could probably look back on moments in your life that our our faith is strengthened. It gets stronger. It's steeled, so to speak. That's what the Christian life teaches us. It reminds us in these moments that we are dependent on God, then we seek dependence on God, and our faith is just, it explodes. You ever met someone, um, scratch that, you ever uh, re-met someone, you had not seen them for years, and you looked at them, and their faith was stronger, and you said, you've changed. Invariably, they went through some very difficult time. Or maybe they went on some incredible mission trip where their, their life was completely different, and they didn't have what they normally had. You, you just can't get away from the fact that this is the truth about our lives. Now, when you, when you look at this passage in, in Exodus, and that's where we'll be in Exodus chapter 17, the Lord took the Israelites on a road to show them how dependent they really were on him. And this story has, has been a story that the authors of the Old Testament and the New, and I'm sure you've heard preachers preach on this story before, was, is, is a foundational and, and a, such an important narrative that it helps frame and understand our faith in general. We just read a moment ago from Psalm 95 where this very scene, this very um, important historical event is used to describe and encourage us, exhort us to worship God and praise His name rightly. So that's the truth. But I, I, wanna, I want us to really dive in here into Exodus chapter 17. I love this story, and it has so many other ramifications. Obviously, it's in Psalm 95. We see it a little bit um, in the, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But so we're just going to look at and kind of go through like the road they were on, their, their horrible lack of faith and response, and then God's provision. So let's look for a moment at the road that they were on. You can't get away from the fact that this is the road that God called them to. From the very beginning, verse 1, it says, according to the command of the Lord. God put them on this road. He set them there. And, and what's important, and we see it again in Psalm 95 as God recalls this, 
up to this point, God had provided for them over and over and over again. So this was a difficult road that God set them on, but already establishing a relationship with, with them to say, you can trust me. You can trust me. Have you thought about this in your life when God sets you on a road that is difficult, but it's not without a history of you and him to kind of secure you and encourage you? Now, this road for sure was a road of sacrifice and privation. Exodus 17 tells the story about how this long and exhausting march from Goshen, from Egypt, to the foothills of Mount Sinai. This is the last stop before Mount Sinai when God gives the law to Moses. The people were literally running on fumes. There's some calculations where this may be upwards of a million people in total, men, women, and children on this travel. And if you've ever been on a trip, I've shared this with you before, when my family of seven and a dog go on a trip anywhere, we have to load the Suburban all the way up to the brim and put one of those little luggage racks on top, and we still have no room in the car, and we may just be gone for a couple of days. On top of that, the Lord loaded them up with gold and silver. So you have this mass of people, numbering maybe a million people, a million in total, and they're wealthy, and they're loaded up with all the goods they could want, but they're running on fumes. as They show up to the foothills of Mount Sinai here in Rephidim. So you'd have to be wondering, they'd have to be wondering, what if there's no water there? What are we going to find? What if we are only moving the location of our own graves? This is kind of the questions they ask and complain about. But God said to walk, so they walked. They kept walking. And then at the limit of their, their absolute limit of their endurance, that's when um, God tells them to, to stop. And then they realize they're super, super thirsty. But this thing, as you watch them, God begins to shape them and their children. And to some degree, shaping Moses and Joshua and Caleb, who come later on into the scene. Um, so this thing starts to shape them and grow them. I had a dinner with the bishop and his wife this past week, Kate and I did. And we go over there from time to time with Philip and Claudia to talk about our lives, talk about St. Patrick's, how things are going. And Philip asked us the question at some point as we were sitting down, dinner was coming to a close, and he said, so what, have you guys have been planting St. Patrick's and doing what you've done? What's the, the best thing about it? And that morning, I was actually had been thinking about um, Kate and I and our marriage. And without hesitation, I said, one of the best things about planting St. Patrick's and doing this with community is that Kate and I have never been closer. We have grown closer through the difficulty of starting something new together. Obviously, having five kids, that, that helps because there's, a, there's a, a difficulty in that. We have to team up and talk and communicate. Oh, the communication. Anyway, we have to you know, discuss everything, go through things. Life can be very difficult. But planting a church is also very difficult. And so I told Philip and Claudia, without hesitation, we have never been closer. Now, I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way Kate and I could be close without having to go through the difficulty of, that comes from planting a church or raising five kids, finances, dinners, cleaning, all that sort of stuff. But maybe because of sin and decay and weakness in humanity, weakness in me, there is no other way. 
This is what we're called to. Eugene Peterson wrote this, the only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions that prevail at the moment, this day. So it doesn't matter if you have kids or don't have kids. You've been married for a while, you're still not married. You have difficulties in your life. The Lord has placed you on that road and said, this very day is how you are going to live by faith. Now, I don't want you to miss this. It is also a road of grace and provision. He's not merely putting us on a road and go, this is going to be great because it's so difficult. Good luck. See ya. I mean, the one thing that, that, that I keep reminding myself, even as I read through the story of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, is that God was always there with them. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But there was always a cloud of God, a cloud of glory over the people of Israel every day, giving them shade. There was also always a cloud of fire, a pillar of fire over them at night, giving them warmth and light. So even though God puts you on a road of privation and difficulty, he's always providing for you. There's always a grace. I didn't realize this, but you ever wondered why the Israelites went? Like if you ever saw a map, I mean, you'd watch them and here's Egypt and his, here's Israel and it's just a few days travel, maybe a week if you're slow, kids, a week and a half, all right, maybe three weeks, but whatever. They took 40 years and they go like this. And then they finally get there on the other side of the Dead Sea by the Jordan. It's such a roundabout road. And the Lord is guiding them. If you and I had planned to go from here to Kansas City, we would take the straightest route possible. We wouldn't go to Florida first. But here's, here's one thing that I, that I, I didn't take into account. There, there are three major roads from, from Egypt to to Israel, what would be the promised land. Um, the quickest route would actually have taken them through the really large cities and strong armed armies of the Philistines. Like of all the people, you've heard the stories of the Philistines probably, um, Goliath and all that. Uh, these are the, the people that lived on the Mediterranean Sea, right there. They were not prepared to face that kind of enemy. They were wealthy, but they were incredibly weak. They had been slaves for centuries. They were in no state to be able to attack that or defend themselves. So God actually took them far away from anything like that. In fact, the first battle, I think it's later here in chapter 17, without looking at it, I think it is against one of them. Um, it was very difficult, and this wasn't even a really, really strong people that they had to defend themselves against. And so the Lord, even from this direction of where they're going, was a grace and a provision. It was a grace because they, he gave them a different route so that they could, they could build upon what they were becoming, a people of their own. And it was a provision because everywhere along the way, God was giving them water, giving them food, giving them direction, and finally giving them law, kind of a, a definition of who they were supposed to be. And he did this from the beginning to end. We talked a moment ago about the, the, the pillar of fire at night and the, the pillar of cloud by day. But also, this isn't the only time that God had provided water from a rock. There's a second time this happens 
And maybe, maybe this has provided some confusion for you. It certainly has for me. Like, I thought I read this before. It happens again in Numbers 20, near the end of their 40 years in the desert. Water comes out of a rock again. And that time, Moses got silly with it, and he, get, he gets reprimanded for it. But that's another sermon. Um, so, so God, even though he's given them a long way around, he's constantly providing for them. So this is the road. This is the road that God has set them on. And maybe you too can look upon your life and see, okay, this is where God has set me. Now, how do they respond? God commands them to go along this road, and then they begin in with the quarreling and the complaining. It says in verse 3, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses because they were thirsty. Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? This is, in fact, the name of the place from here on out. This is a place of Meribah and Masa, which is, those words literally mean quarreling and testing. So in spite of God's direction and presence, his past deliverance and the mediation of Moses, the people still lacked faith. I, I have to look at myself in the mirror in those moments. We're like, I forget, and maybe it's because I have bad memory, but I forget, oh my goodness, we're never going to get out of this mess. And somebody just has to say, but remember when, you know, you were 21 and you were confused and the Lord showed up? Remember when you were 27 or 34 and you thought you had, you know, no future, you know, before you met Kate? Never thought you'd have kids? You know, all these times in my life where I was like, oh my goodness, how do I get out of this? Remember when you got fired or you lost your job? Remember you got sick? God always shows up. And so they forgot about it. I have one question, though. Why is this a sin to grumble and test God and to wonder? Um, well, at some point in the life of faith, God demonstrates to you, just like he's demonstrated to the people here, his love and provision. And in the history of the world, you see God has done it in extraordinary ways. So therefore, when you doubt him in some of more, your difficult moments, it's not without some background. It's no longer a reasonable response. If God had resurrected people in the past, why do we worry about how God will provide for us now, today, or be there for us? It is either the response of someone with a lack of faith or someone who has reversed the power dynamics of their relationship. Now, this is important because this is where the testing really shows up. You see, by testing God and asking the question through Moses, is God really here? Why have you brought us out here? It's an act of manipulation where they're trying to get God to respond. It's not unlike, in fact, it's very similar to the way the Canaanites used to worship their gods. They would dance around or make sacrifices or do cultish things to force the gods to respond. It's like magic. It's manipulation. It looks just like that scene in Matthew chapter 4 where the devil tempts Jesus. This is the second temptation. I find this interesting and informative. That of the three temptations of Jesus, the second one is about testing God. The devil took him to the holy city on verse, in verse 5, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus responds to him by saying, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, what 
Satan was offering to him was a chance to manipulate the father, to force him, to trick him, to make him go through this route so that Jesus would be elevated in front of all the people of Jerusalem. He is the Son of God. He was trying to circumvent the difficult road that the Father set the Son of God on, a life of ministry and sacrifice and finally death. Satan was trying to manipulate Jesus say, I got another route for you. Test God. If he does this, hey, you're golden. Have you been there? Have you wondered? Have you grumbled? This is not dissimilar from the way the Canaanites were doing it. It's just like what Satan was trying to do. If, they had, if Jesus had succumbed, it would have been a manipulative tool. This was what the pagans do. So when I say something like uh, reverse the power dynamics in their relationship, um, God tests us. We don't test God. And by testing us, it actually strengthens our faith. God puts the Israelites on this road. He places you on a road, and it tests you. It's like putting steel in a furnace and banging on it. It makes you stronger. When we test God, it looks like, I don't believe you. Prove it. As if we are the ones sitting on the judgment seat. And God has to show us. Now, um, God at this moment, I'm sure, could have just struck them all down. <laughs> said, I'm done with you. Um, but he doesn't. He provides for them. Moses cries out to the Lord and says, what am I supposed to do with these people? And, and God very calmly says, pass on before the people. This is in verse 6. Pass on, am I reading this right? Or is that verse 5? I'm sitting in my glasses. Verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass, pass on before, before the people. Gather some elders of Israel and take your staff with you. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out, and the people shall drink. So out of this random rock, presumably the rock that the Lord was taking them to, um, Moses strikes it, and water comes out, and God provides and it says here that the, 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 that the Lord remained with them. He would stand at, on the rock there in front of them. I get this picture of Moses going up to the rock, and of course God's invisible, and, and he's imagining in his mind's eye, God is right there. And he goes and strikes the rock, and water gushes forth. Uh, there are some places there in what they think is Rephidim uh, where there's some water that comes out and it's gathered underneath. Not always. I mean, I imagine strike a hundred rocks and no water is going to come out. It just happens to be there. And so, so God shows up, and in spite of the failures of the Israelites, God provides. And in some sense, the, you could see how God had been following them all along, and then this rock that the water is pouring forth, metaphorically speaking, had been with them the entire time. What do I mean by that? Well, after this happens, and over the years, and we see it again in Numbers 20, at the end of their, of their uh, journey in the 40 years, God does it again, the Israelites begin to think, was this rock with us the whole time? Metaphorically or maybe supernaturally, miraculously, this rock never left us. And this actually takes on a life of its own, where by the time Jesus shows up, 
Um, and Paul starts writing that there's this long uh, literary and historical understanding that when the Israelites were in the desert, the rock of God, where water came out, was always with them, that it was following them. This is what they believed. Um, there's, a, there's a rabbinic uh, um, exegesis from the time of Paul that surmised that the rock followed them through their wanderings. So it's probably was pretty current in Paul's times. So when in Paul's time, so when 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 Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he writes this, for I don't want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. And then this is what he writes. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And so Paul says they were right, actually. It wasn't just a metaphor that Christ was with them. And you get some real kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, facts in it where you, when, when God says to Moses, I will stand on that rock with you. And then, and then, and then, Jesus has that encounter with the Samaritan woman and says, if you had known who, who it is you're having this conversation with, you would have asked for living water, and it will come out of you. Jesus is that rock. And so, in, in a sense, at the end of the day, I mean, I guess it's unclear whether Paul really believed this, but I don't know. It seems pretty convincing to me. Not, not the part about Jesus being the rock, of course, but whether this was true that the rock was following them. But most ancient, somebody wrote this, most ancient and modern commentators assume that Paul is reading Israel's history typologically rather than suggesting that Jesus was present and with Israel in the wilderness in the form of a movable water source. But I say, he was there over and over again. He never left them. And if you have to go back to the cloud and the fire by night, it makes it clear the rock, you could almost say, was the Old Testament name given to Jesus himself. Water from the rock. So Christ was with them. And when you think about the flow of God placing them on the road that they were in, <laughs> their lack of faith and weakness, and God's continued provision, it is a great comfort knowing that Christ was with them and among them the entire way. God had never left them. It's really important in that when you read, I think it was in Psalm 95, we just read a moment ago, where God was frustrated with the people of Israel. But Christ changes all of that. Do you think God is frustrated with you? Or has Christ mediated in such a way that all you need to worry about is that Christ is with you? And he provides for you. I sometimes get frustrated at my kids. And I hate it about myself because I get this face. You know the face where you just, it's a face of disappointment. And for me, as a weak and sinful father, it's, it's some way to try to manipulate my kids into doing right. But that never works. Um, instead, I just need to be more patient with them. And this is a little bit on the side of it. But I, but I think sometimes my response to my kids is a poor image of God the Father. I don't think it's right. I don't think God looks at us like that. Instead, God makes sure that the rock is always with us, and that Christ is the one that intercedes. Christ 
God's approach to you is always one of grace and love. So what does all this mean? I think it means that we are meant to live this life a little bit in privation, with a little bit of lack. That you don't go through life with everything being provided for you in abundance all the time. Sometimes God takes you to the very brink, to the place of utter, I've got nothing left kind of moment. But that's the actual place that God wants you to be in because it strengthens your faith. It reminds you that you um, depend on God all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. Tolkien wrote, faith is not a single moment of final decision. It is a permanent, indefinitely repeated act. God is every moment trying to remind you of, you are dependent upon me. So for me, the application of this is sometimes don't try to avoid it at all costs. Don't blame God for it as if, as if he's mean or vindictive or maybe the Israelites thought he just wasn't there. No, but to say something more along the lines of, God, what do you have for me in this? Why am I here? Strengthen my doubt and my weakness in this moment because the Christian life teaches us that we are always dependent upon God. I think this is such a great message for this season of Lent. The season where um, we're actually called to maybe sacrifice a little bit. So we have moments of privation. Maybe you're not going as extreme as Hugo was and you're putting away all your nice clothes. But fasting and being without, these are things that actually remind us that God provides us with everything that we have. We do not live independently from him. So I invite you, I invite you during this Lenten season to dare to depend more and more on God, to not grumble and quarrel with him, but instead ask the question, what do you have for me, Lord? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this important message that in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, in the life of Israel, You called people into dependence upon you. But you also remind us that there's never a moment when we're not. So, Father, would you show us what that means? Would you, by your Spirit, strengthen our faith? Especially during this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.